This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. If you're listening for the first time, this is a sample episode as part of the Kick-Ass Politics preview station. If you like what you hear, there are many more episodes to enjoy on our main podcast at Kick-Ass Politics with Ben Mathis. You can subscribe for free by going to Kick-Ass Politics with Ben Mathis on iTunes or go to the link in the information page for this episode. Also, feel free to check out our website for show notes, book recommendations, and more at kickasspolitics.com. And now, I hope you enjoy this preview episode of Kick-Ass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is sponsored by Fiverr. You've heard me rave about Fiverr before. That's Fiverr with two R's. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services, with over 100 categories all offered at a fixed base price of just $5. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards and stationery, web design, translation, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can imagine, all offered at a fixed base price of just $5. You know the announcer who does our intro on Kick-Ass Politics? Believe it or not, I found him on Fiverr, a professional radio announcer to do our intro for just five bucks. And right now, if you go to Kick-Ass Politics and click on the Fiverr ad on our sponsor page, you'll be showing your support for the show and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. And so the bottom line is this. I, um, I've been unfaithful to my wife. I developed um, a relationship with a, um, which started as a dear, dear friend from Argentina. It sparked into something more than that. Um, I have seen her three times since then uh, during that whole sparking thing. Uh, to give you way more detail than you'll ever want, uh, You're listening to a now infamous 2009 press conference in which former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford confessed to having an affair with an Argentine news reporter. And then he went on for 20 excruciating minutes to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. The biggest self of self is is, is indeed self. Uh, Both in college, I was a campus representative for Eastern Airlines and could fly free, which meant I'd fly a different place around the world give myself a job, carry $100 emergency money. The, the, the odyssey that we're all on in life is with regard to heart. We called it Jurassic Park because it was the kids' dinosaur sheets and I had the most you know, surreal of conversations a number of weeks ago with my father-in-law. I see Cubby Culbertson uh, in the back of the room. Cubby, I want to say thank you for being there as a friend. I would simply say I go back to that simple word of asking for forgiveness. Your reaction to those in your party and your lieutenant governor that call this irresponsible and are disappointed in your decision to do this? At at this point, it would be obvious that they and others would be disappointed and that I've disappointed them and others. Why did you resign as governor? That legendarily bad press conference was the culmination of a five-day media circus that had staffers claiming he was hiking the Appalachian Trail, his own wife confessing that she had no clue where he'd gone, and the South Carolina State Police putting out an APB for their own sitting governor. Governor Samford's eventual rambling confession that he'd been visiting his mistress in Argentina 
has since become a case study in how not to do damage control and forever redefined the phrase hiking the Appalachian Trail as a euphemism for, well, doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Today I'll go behind the scenes with Barton Swaim. He served as speechwriter and communications operative for Sanford, and he had a front row seat to the three-ring circus that became the governor's personal life. It's all in his new book, The Speechwriter, A Brief Education in Politics. We'll discuss the frustrations of trying to capture the former governor's less-than-articulate speaking style, which included a fixation on always having three points, even when he only had two points, his need for a, quote, larger notion, whatever that means, and his obsession with Rosa Parks. We'll talk about Sanford's notorious cheapness, the inherent narcissism of all politicians, and how the former governor rode the Tea Party wave to national fame and consideration as a leading contender for the GOP nomination, just before throwing it all away with a bizarre sex scandal and an even more bizarre response. All that and more in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Today I've got Barton Swaim with me. He served for over three years as speechwriter and communications officer for Governor Mark Sanford of South Carolina, and now he's written about his experience in a new book called The Speechwriter, A Brief Education in Politics. Uh, Barton, I love the book. It's funny. It's entertaining. It, it's all the king's men meets the devil wears Prada. <laughs> that, that about, that's, a, that's about it, yeah. Well, well, thanks for coming on the show, Barton. Um, let's just get this out of the way and start by asking you the question that I suspect has been the bane of your existence ever since that time. <laughs> Did you write Governor Sanford's now infamous rambling press conference speech? <laughs> right. I have been asked that at least 25 times. No, and I don't think that anybody wrote it. <clears throat> Although I do seem to recall that he was holding some note cards, which suggested that he had scribbled something out. But that wasn't the sort of thing that he he asked my advice on. It didn't It didn't look prepared, I'll say that about it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it if it was improvised, it certainly looked like it was improvised. So I, we think can, it would, I think it would still be going on if his communications director had not dragged <laughs> him from the podium. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I'm glad we can absolve you of the responsibility for that public relations fiasco there. Yeah. Well, the book, again, is called The Speechwriter, A Brief Education in Politics. So let's go back all the way back to the beginning here, because this really was an education in politics for you, because you didn't come from a political background. You had a Ph.D. in English, and you were, I think at the time, working in a college library yes. when you got this wild hair to reach out to the governor for a job. <laughs> what made you decide to do that? Well, like, like a lot of Ph.D.s in English, I didn't have a job. And also, like a lot of Ph.D. D's in English, I had been looking for one for a long time with no success. And what made me think of sending him a resume was because I had seen an op-ed that he, that he had written in the state newspaper here in Columbia. And it was, it was wretched. 
it was it was a god awful thing, and I thought this guy needs a writer. Now I didn't exactly say that in the letter, but I came close to saying it. Um, you know, I I'm, I can write, and I think that you might need a writer, which he did because it just happened that he had fired the previous speech writer. Uh, that's how I got the job. So uh, you talk about how everyone on his team was poorly paid and overworked, uh, the result being that his staff was smaller, younger, and arguably less seasoned than the typical governor's office. So now when you look back to that first interview, do you wonder how much of your big break was just the governor saying, well, well, heck, here's a kid who can write and he'll take the job and I can't afford to hire an experienced speechwriter, so why not? Well, he can't afford. He, he wouldn't afford. But, yeah, that's totally the reason why I got a job, which I didn't realize at the time. At the time, I thought it was because I sent, I sent writing samples and he read them and he must have been impressed. And, oh, look at me. Uh, yeah, it was just because he thought I was some kid uh, who would who would uh, work myself to death for beans, which <laughs> I guess I was. Well, you got in there, you, you won the interview, and you got hired. How long did it take for the bloom to fall off the rose here? And you realize maybe this guy isn't exactly what I've built him up to be or what people have built him up to be. Well, the, the first week or two, you're the, you're the office genius. Um, you're the you're the bright shiny thing, and the governor thinks that you're awesome, and so you you get this feeling that you're, this job is going to be easy, it's going to be fun, it was made for you, success awaits, and then something happens after a couple weeks, um, you you just become one of the staffers that um, can't do anything right, and his his sort of way of of running an office, I guess it's a leadership style, I don't know, is just to express extreme dissatisfaction with everything anyone does in the hopes that they'll do it better, which, strangely enough, actually kind of works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if you're never satisfied, then everyone keeps striving to please. Right. It creates a lot of turnover also, mm -hmm. which is a downside, and some really unhappy feelings in the office. But it does work. And um, that's, it wasn't personal, so if you if you're going to take his criticisms as personally about you or as as if he's mad at you specifically, you you won't you won't last very long. Well, reading the book, I have to say it sounds like he was kind of a jerk. I mean, you you mentioned one story in there when it was one of the staffers' birthday, and he walks in, he helps himself to a piece of cake uh, without even wishing her happy birthday, and then just walks back in his office, and then. All of the rest of you sing her happy birthday with a great big corner missing out of her cake. Yeah, and until he had cut the cake, it hadn't been cut, and it actually had candles that were still unburnt in it. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that amused me in here was when Christmas rolls around every year, uh, he would take random gifts from constituents and re-gift them to the staff. <laughs> yeah. What what were some of the best, or, or perhaps I should say the worst Christmas gifts that you guys got from the governor? Right. The, so the governor was notoriously cheap, and a lot of people outside the office thought that that was sort of a put-on. It wasn't a put-on. It, 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 it was a psychosis. <laughs> um, he, he was uh, just cheap to, a, to an insane degree. And there are many stories about this, but the, the re-gifting is... Is 
one of the best. And um, so the, the legend was that at some Christmas uh, when he was in Congress, he had put his wife, Jenny, uh, in charge of, of getting Christmas gifts for the staff. And she had spent an amount of money that he thought was way too high, which for him was probably like $100 or something. And he, he pitched a fit, and she said, okay, from now on you can buy Christmas gifts for the staff. So he did this by regifting things that he had, he had acquired along the way that are unwanted and, and useless. And he would just reassign those to different staffers. So when, one year I got a, a, a collection of shoe polish cans wrapped in cellophane. Another year I got a T-shirt that was from some hardware store. He had gotten it from, you know, having a press conference in a small business, and they had presented him with a T-shirt. And uh, one staffer got a Christmas ornament that said, uh, Merry Christmas, love the Peterkins. And we don't know who the Peterkins were, but they had been nice enough to send the Sanfords a Christmas ornament, which uh, now got assigned to one of my colleagues. Well, I hope he made up for it with the end-of-the-year bonus then. Oh, oh, absolutely. It was, it was through the roof. Yeah, there was no bonus. <laughs> okay. So uh, during the first few months that you were on the governor's staff, it was pretty touch and go, you say. It, you just couldn't seem to please the guy. So at one point your wife told you, if you want to keep your job, you need to start writing badly like he wants you to write. Uh, right. Talk about, I guess, let's, for lack of a better word, uh, let's call it the dumbing down of Barton Swaim, if you will. Uh, how did you manage to capture his, his quote-unquote voice? Yeah, it, 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 I don't think it was exactly a matter of dumbing down because I, I'm happy to dumb down. Um, a politician has to speak to as many people as possible, um, as many people who are capable of understanding the basic message, which, you know, you can't use a lot of abstract and highfalutin language. That part was fine. It was the, it was the particularly weird and angular style that he would write in. Um, the, most of the sentences would trail off into um, just uh, strings of dependent clauses, and they would begin in really awkward ways. The, the, the images and the metaphors would be extremely hokey and sometimes wouldn't make sense. The metaphors were always mixed. And, um, my, yeah, my wife, she would say, you need to start writing badly. And I thought, well, I can't do that. Um, I would argue with her. I can't, I can't do that. I'm a writer. Um, you know, when you're good at something or you think you are, you can't just intentionally do it badly and let other people see. But when, but when, when your job's fired, on the line, you um, find a way, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought, well, you know, maybe there's something to that. And so I just compiled a list of his favorite words and phrases. I did this by listening to hours and hours of his dictated letters. He's a prodigious letter writer. And... Um, this I created a one-page list. It's probably got, I don't know, 30, 35 just random words and phrases. If you saw them, you wouldn't think. They're just ordinary phrases. Some are slightly weird. And so I just started inserting them randomly into everything I wrote, and that, that seemed to do the trick. I think my favorite, I, I read your list, and I think my favorite Sanfordism was uh, toward that end. 
which only really makes sense if you're speaking in terms of <laughs> describing, a, I suppose, a, a physical space. But <laughs> as a PhD, right. as a guy with a PhD in English, you must have had some some favorite Sanfordisms. Uh, what what were a few of them? Well, the the um, there was pearls of wisdom was was there a lot, and the absolute favorite in the office was was larger notions, and he would use larger notion to describe things that were not large and they were not notions um, or if they were large it wasn't clear what they were larger than and it was just a phrase that would come out and then what followed it was just the idea that he wanted to get across and once in a while if somebody was trying to get a, a press release or a press statement approved by the boss they would you know show it around to other guys in the office and Somebody would say, yeah, it looks pretty good. Stick a larger notion in there, and it should be good. <laughs> well, one of the other things you talk about along those lines is, uh, I guess, uh, if you wanted to get a speech approved, the one easy way to do that was to throw in something about Rosa Parks. What, what was his <laughs> uh, obsession with Rosa Parks? Right. Well, r the Rosa Parks story sort of encapsulated everything that he wanted to be and to do in politics. He wanted to be... The, the one guy who would say no and the one guy who would not sit down and everybody was telling him to sit down um, he didn't he, he wasn't afraid to make really big enemies and um, that one story caught it and he, he actually came to me at one point and said you know I talk about Rosa Parks a lot are there other stories like that that we can use and I gave him a few more but there was always something wrong with it like well you know the guy that stood in front of the tank in, in Tiananmen Square, well, that guy doesn't have a name. No one knows who he was. And um, Lech Walesa, uh, the Polish leader of, of Solidarity, well, he didn't want to pronounce a lot of foreign names, you know. So it was always back to, back to Rosa Parks. You know, it was, you couldn't use it for everything that you gave him because then he would be on to you. But when you really thought that it fit, you'd drop a Rosa, Rosa Parks in there, and uh, that seemed to to earn some appreciation. Well, well, the other frustration that you mention in here is he was obsessed with the law of threes. And <laughs> every speech, even if you only had two salient <laughs> points, you had to make up a third point. Yeah, and there, you know, it's maybe a need for symmetry, um, which I get. But in an op-ed, he would have at least three points, sometimes four, but never two. And... There was, there was one instance, and one of the policy advisors came to him and said, okay, the three points that we gave you, uh, that third one, it doesn't really apply, you know, for whatever policy reason, so you can't use that one. But the other two were solid, just use those. And he was like, okay, I'm not going out there and talking about two stupid points. You find me a third thing. Go. <laughs> and did you and we find did come one? up with a third thing. I don't remember what it was, but there was a third thing. Well, yeah, what's the point of coming up with a third thing if no one remembers it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's sort of what you said there um, is, is significant to my mind because all of politics, uh, when, you're, when you're inside it, the fate of, of uh, Western civilization depends on what the governor says tomorrow in a press conference about the Senate budget. Um, and, you know, two weeks later, you can't even remember what it was. But at the time, it was it was the absolute most important thing anyone has ever thought of and could work on. Um, and 
that sort of thing wore me out after a while. Well, that brings up something that I found interesting in the book. Um, you make some interesting points about the disingenuousness of politics, and you point out quite rightly that politicians will rarely tell an outright lie. Mm -hmm. As you say, it's all about using the maximum amount of words with the maximum number of interpretations. Yeah. Um, but you discovered it's a practical necessity because as governor, you have to have something to say about everything. Mm -hmm. Talk some more mm -hmm. about what that kind of pressure is like. Yeah, I came to appreciate how hard it is for a politician to have a view or a position on everything that the media might ask you about. There are a few things that a politician will care deeply about, and he wants to talk about those things all the time. But he doesn't have that luxury because people ask him about 50 other things. And many of those other things he doesn't care about, he has no power over, and it serves no useful purpose for him to offer any kind of view. But he's asked about them, so he has to say something. And you don't really want to weigh in on it, but you kind of have to. You just say a lot of verbiage that sounds like something when people hear it. But when they walk away, they realize it's nothing. Because you don't want to commit yourself to a course of action that might bind you two months from now when circumstances change. And it's mission accomplished. Well, right, because the moment you commit to something, you alienate someone. Right. Right, and you, and you don't even care about the something. So why, why spend your capital on something you don't you don't care about? I'm not blaming politicians for doing that. At some level, it's it's just our own fault as a as a culture because we expect um, politicians to be our guides and and to have wisdom about everything. And they're not they're not any wiser than we are. Why why do we keep forcing them to speak? It's, it serves no useful purpose for any politician to speak that often about that many things. Right. I mean, he has to have some kind of a comment every time a, a, a significant business yeah. closes, every time something goes on in some small town, whatever yeah. goes on in his state, he has to have something to say. And it, in a similar vein, uh, you talk about the responsibility when you have real people writing you as governor asking your advice, people mm -hmm. who potentially might even make significant life choices for better or worse based on your advice. And you probably wrote hundreds or even thousands of these letters on behalf yeah. of the governor back to people. How do you navigate that situation without getting yourself in trouble and yet somehow still look like you care? Right. To give you a good example, one letter that we got all the time was, should I go into politics? So, I couldn't have the governor say, yes, you should get into politics, because you, you run the risk of some guy saying, hey, the governor endorsed me in a, in a county council race, um, and he would have a letter to prove oh, it. Yeah. Uh, and you couldn't say, you know, no, you shouldn't, or something like that, because it would just be mean. So it would just be about the importance of uh, engaging in the political sphere and all that verbiage, while never saying, I, I encourage you to do this. And it was like that on a lot of different issues. You had to say something that sounded warm and personal and engaged without committing the boss to, to anything that he would be held responsible for later. Well, by 2008, 2009, his star was rising. Uh, he stood up to the feds over Real ID. 
and he was becoming one of the biggest opponents mm. to the Obama stimulus package. And shortly thereafter, he would become a darling of the Tea Party for a while. But talk about what that first Tax Day Tea Party rally back in '09 was like before anyone, including you guys, even knew what the Tea Party was, really. Yeah. yeah we, we never heard the term before, and, you know, people started saying there was going to be a rally. We didn't know if there were going to be five people there because people are always announcing rallies, you know. Politician basically will come if there's going to be a lot of people and won't if there's nobody. And so he reluctantly agreed to address this crowd. I suggested something for him to say. Uh, he sort of rejected it and just gave a weird version of, of the thing I wanted him to say. Um, but I remember as he spoke, the people, it didn't matter what he said. I mean, he could have said Mary had a little lamb, and people were just enraptured because he had become a very credible, kind of almost like a hero to a lot of these people. And that, plus the fact that he was constantly being asked to come on Fox and MSNBC and the rest of them to talk about the stimulus or to talk about monetary policy, um, got every all of us thinking that, you know, what was the next step here? Clearly, it was uh, something in the direction of Washington. Well, we'll take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about the scandal that redefined the phrase hiking the Appalachian Trail and what Barton learned from his experience in the spin room for Mark Sanford in those days. Back in just a moment. If you're enjoying today's podcast with my guest Barton Swaim, then I think you'll love his book, The Speechwriter, A Brief Education in Politics. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be Barton Swain's The Speechwriter or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickass politics or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audio book of your choice and if you like kickass politics and want to help keep us on the air then please support the show by making a donation to our gofundme campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickass politics or go to the show website and click on the donate link your support will help keep us producing new and even more interesting programs in the future that's GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with Barton Swaim, author of The Speechwriter. So it's spring, summer of 2009. Your guy is riding high on the Tea Party wave. He's getting tons of national attention. His name is being bandied about as a potential presidential candidate. He's chairman of the Republican Governors Association, which has always been a stepping stone to running for president. And then suddenly in June, it all comes crashing down. Give us a play-by-play -play of the scandal from your point of view, Barton. Well, it was doubly bizarre because Mark Sanford was not one of those politicians who you could see anything like that happening to. Some politicians, they fall into these sexual scandals, and you could kind of see it happening. They're flirty. They're maybe too familiar with people. 
Sanford was not that way. He was he was actually kind of standoffish and awkward. Um, yeah, there was nothing with, slick with, about him. <laughs> no. Um, from the outside, there's no way that could happen. You know, as much as I didn't didn't like him personally, at least he wasn't going to, you know, pull in Elliot Spitzer, which had happened a few months before that. And when he went missing, quote, missing, I didn't think that there was anything to it because he often, he's the kind of guy, again, slightly, he's an odd guy. And he liked to go off by himself places and, you know, blow off steam. I don't know. I didn't care. I got more done when he was gone anyway. And when media started asking, you know, where is he, where is he, and we couldn't get in touch with him, I thought, ah, don't say that. He'll come back. Uh, I don't want him to come back. And then some of the senior staff stopped joking after he'd been missing for, what is it, four or five days. Um, And the deputy chief of staff came in and said um, that the governor was about to address the media and would say something, quote, disappointing. That plus the fact that she had clearly been crying uh, told me that this is this is not good. So he has that very strange press conference, which I actually walked away from as soon as as soon as he said I've been unfaithful to my wife because I thought, you know, neat. I just started to admire you. Well, it was um, only eight it, minutes into the speech that he finally actually <laughs> confessed. That's what was funny to me. He gives yeah, like an eight-minute yeah, apology, and thing. no one knows what he's apologizing for yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, look, public apologies are are always weird and insincere. You can't help feeling they're just saying it to make the scandal go away. So there's that intrinsic um, insincerity about anything like that. And then there's the fact that he couldn't bring himself to apologize. And so he finally worked himself up to it. And uh, it was just excruciating. The attitude in the office was one of confusion and anger and frustration. So the infamous press conference speech uh, where he's rambling and he's apologizing to everyone under the sun and then he starts to go off on a tangent and talk about his best friend Tom. (laughs) And and he throws in a lot of the famous Sanfordisms that we talked about earlier. Um, (laughs) You were not on the inside leading up to this. Um, if you had been on, on the inside, what would you have advised Sanford to do at that conference? In any public event where he was speaking, he wanted to say something that was more interesting than anybody else. Well, he accomplished and, that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but there's one situation in which uh, you don't want to say anything interesting, and that's when you're confessing an extramarital affair before national media. Um, I think it was that. It was a desire somehow to not to say the usual thing. Um, But that's what you need to do in a situation like that. Just say, this is a private matter. Um, I apologize for, you know, misleading about my whereabouts. But um, as for my personal life, I'm going to leave, you know, not say anything about that and working through it with my family and all this kind of stuff. And, and get out of there quick. Uh, but, yeah, 18 minutes, and he had to be dragged away from the microphone. Yeah, I mean, this is not the first time this has happened. When I think back to Rudy Giuliani or Newt Gingrich, who had very similar scandals, they apologized, 
and then they shut up and they handled it in a dignified way yeah. and they let it die down. And a couple of years later, they're they're the leading candidates for uh, their party's nomination for president. I mean, the American people, <laughs> particularly in the post-Clinton era, are very forgiving. But what's hard to forgive is overshare if you yeah. make it awkward and weird for people, which is exactly what he did. And remember, the, the day after that happened, Michael Jackson died. It was, the, it was the luckiest possible thing that could happen for him because suddenly the media was completely um, in, entranced with the uh, surprising and untimely death of the most famous pop star in the world. Right, and he's probably um, the one person who could out-weird Mark right, Sanford at that right. moment. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it looked like we, we might weather this, um, but nope, day after that, he has two AP reporters come into his office, they shut the door, um, and he goes on another rambling, uh, weird, oversharing uh, bunch of balderdash about soulmate and the love story and all the rest, in addition to being just humiliating to his, his wife, which there's no reason for doing this in, in front of everybody. Um, it resurrected the whole thing that had died the day before, or almost, um, it was just it was just the worst possible way you could handle a scandal like this. Look, I wanted to say to him, if you could just for a minute say just a completely bland thing and and keep all of your keep all of your weirdness for your mistress or whoever uh, and away from the microphone, we 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 might actually still have a job a year from now. It was strange because he tried to elevate it to some great love story for the ages as if he was Edward VIII or something. And <laughs> it was crazy because you had this guy who portrayed himself right. as a simple guy, plain spoken, frugal, someone people could right. look up to and say, he's a guy just like you and me. Then suddenly he's flying off to his right. Argentinian mistress. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's not like she was she was a hairdresser right. down the street. It, it didn't exactly fit the narrative he crafted for himself. How could such a seemingly ordinary, plain-spoken, normal guy be suddenly so completely out of touch with reality? Right. It was just another ordinary, tawdry, midlife crisis affair whatever, these things happen. But stop romanticizing it and trying to find some, some high-flown rhetoric to describe it. Stop. Well, he didn't get impeached, largely because right. the guy who was lieutenant governor and would have taken over was completely incompetent. So Governor Sanford has a year and a half left as a disgraced, mm -hmm. lame-duck governor. What did you do for the next year and a half there? What was that like? Well, you know, as a speechwriter, but he wasn't given many speeches because nobody would invite him. Um, <laughs> if he wanted to address a Rotary Club or something like that, he had to pretty much invite himself, which was desperately sad. I had sort of a new job. One of the staffers who had headed up constituent services came to me and told me that the word integrity was all over a lot of the letters that they would send out. It was everywhere. And as I started to look through them, it got worse because there was also the word love and um, the possibilities for double entendre and, and irony were everywhere. I mentioned <laughs> people write letters to the governor. They also invite governors to their weddings. I don't know why they do this, um, but it's some kind of... It certainly isn't for of, the gifts, apparently. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so 
some kind of tradition where a lot of young people or their parents, I don't know, send an invitation to the governor to a wedding. And, you know, the governor didn't know these people. He's not going to come. But he usually insisted on on writing a letter. Clearly, in this situation, we needed to stop sending this letter. But no, he wanted to continue to send out um, a thank you for the invitation and regret that he couldn't come. And not only that, he wanted to say something about the importance of marriage, which <laughs> was was bizarre beyond belief. Um, you think it's easy to to write language that has no meaning. Try writing three or four substantial sentences about marriage that have nothing to do with marriage and don't refer to it in <laughs> any way. That's it's really difficult. What did you learn from this, Barton, politically or otherwise? Um, I used to think that we needed the right people to run for office. Um, but as I thought about my experiences there, um, I just came to believe that it takes vanity and some level of self-absorption and self-regard to get yourself elected, especially at high levels of politics. I don't begrudge politicians that. Um, I think they're admirable sometimes, and in many cases they have wisdom and, and courage, and they should be congratulated in those cases, but I don't think they're trustworthy. Well, toward the end of the book, you talk about this, and I think it's an interesting point that applies to just about anyone that I can possibly think of throughout the history of politics, and that is a politician, often they do the right thing, but they do it for the wrong motives. They do it for their own self-aggrandizement. Um, yeah. Even right. if I think back to probably the greatest leader of the 20th century, say, uh, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill yeah. was a fantastic leader, and he was the right man at the right time. Absolutely. But he also really wanted that job, and <laughs> he really craved <laughs> he was, the adulation. He was an unbelievably vain person. Yeah. Well, were you surprised that he came back from the political dead when Mark Sanford won election to his old uh, congressional seat? I have to say I was not surprised. When people ask me what the governor is doing now, I always say I expect he's figuring out what office to run for next. To him... Personal failure is not a thing. Personal failure just means the time till the next victory has lengthened a little. Then he ran and he won, as I, as I thought he would. Mm -hmm. So have you heard anything from him since the book came out? He told a reporter that he had no plans to read it, which I don't believe for a minute. Um, but he, I haven't spoken to him. And I don't expect I will. Well, I don't see a narcissist like Mark Samford not wanting to read a book about himself. It just wouldn't <laughs> right. make sense. That's why I say I don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the book is The Speechwriter, A Brief Education in Politics by Barton Swaim. And I think it's a must read for anyone considering getting into the political game. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again to Barton Swaim for coming on the show. I highly recommend his book, The Speechwriter. It's a real window into what goes on in the political spin room. Plus, if you ask me, it's one of the funniest political tell-alls in a very long time. So check it out. I'll include a link to the Amazon page for The Speechwriter in the show notes at kickasspolitics.com. And there's also an audio version of The Speechwriter, which you can get for free with that special 30-day trial from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the sponsor link on our webpage 
to download the speechwriter or any book you want totally free. It's a great deal, no obligation, doesn't cost you a thing. Also, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you can automatically get new episodes as they become available. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps a lot with our show rankings on iTunes. And if you like kick-ass politics and you want to help keep us on the air, then support the show by making a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or go to the show website and click on the donate link. Your support will help keep the lights on over here and will be greatly appreciated. That's GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com or leave a voicemail on the toll-free listener hotline at 844-KA-POLITICS. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.